to be with you again on Sunday morning and, and share with you. And I just can't resist. I want to know I'm weeping with those of you that weep. I'm celebrating with those that celebrate. All right, so let's leave it right there. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 14, verse 6. John chapter 14, verse 6 for our, our message today. And we're going to be talking about who will be in heaven. Who will be in heaven. You know, one of the, one of the terrible things that uh, would happen to us is to end up in the wrong place. Let me share a story that happened a few years back when I was in Coffee County at uh, Hillcrest Baptist and, and Enterprise. We had one of our rural church churches, the Bethany Baptist Church, which was our strongest rural church that we had um, in, in uh, Coffee County. And they were hosting a Baptist men and RA banquet our, and just an outing one Thursday night. They were having hamburgers and hot dogs and bringing in a guest speaker. They had a number of different kind of activities. And uh, so we took our group from Hillcrest. So I took our Baptist men's group and took a number of RAs out there with us. And we were just having a, a great time. They had a big gym uh, that we could meet in and having a wonderful time. But I noticed uh, that our missionary speaker wasn't there and uh, yet. He wasn't there yet. And so then as we began to finish our meal, I noticed our director of missions and the head of our brotherhood, brotherhood organization for our association, they, they were kind of talking together and I, I just got the feel that something wasn't right. Finally, they had to announce that we had no missionary speaker. Our missionary speaker had not shown up. Now, Bethany Baptist Church, is in a, its address is New Brockton, all right, in Coffee County, New Brockton. And our missionary was on furlough in Montgomery, and he had gotten instructions to, uh, to go. Uh, he was supposed to be in New Brockton. But he wound up in West Blockton, all right? And some of you know West Blockton on the way to, uh, to Tuscaloosa uh, there on, on Highway 82. And so you're familiar with that. So, you know, about 140 miles difference. He couldn't make it. That's pre-GPS days and pre-cell phone days, all right? So he didn't make He was, I, I know he had to be mortified. He had to be embarrassed later on. I remember talking to him about it at a, at a state meeting. And, and it was all because of a lack of communication. But he wound up in the wrong place. But folks, I think when it comes to our salvation and and knowing that because of Jesus Christ, we're going to go to heaven one day. But I think we're going to be surprised when we get to heaven, those of us who are Christ followers, we're going to be surprised that some people made it. I think we're also going to be surprised some people didn't make it. And so this morning, as we talk about making sure that we know the Savior and that we are Christ followers, I, I want to talk to us about Who's going to be in heaven? Who, who are the people that are going to be in heaven? And so this morning, let's begin with just speaking, first of all, about those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we know those who follow Jesus Christ are going to be in heaven. Those who have sought a relationship with Jesus, those who know their sins are forgiven, those who have received Jesus into, heart, into their hearts, like John 1, uh, 12 says, but as many as received them, to them gave he uh, uh, the, the gift of, of coming into his, into his kingdom and that they have a relationship with him, those that believe in him. And so those that um, have a hard time 
with the exclusiveness of nature of Jesus Christ and a relationship in salvation. Many of, many of them say this. They say, God's going to decide. He will make the decision who is going to be in heaven. But the truth is this. God has already decided who's going to be in heaven. He's, he's already decided that. He set the standard centuries ago. And, and he's not going to, to just surprise us the, uh, when, when we die and open the doors for everybody. He's not going to say, you know, I just love the whole world. I'm just going to open the doors and let everybody in. He's not going to do that. We have a God that is an unchanging God. Now, we change because we're human and we're weak. And so it's our nature that we, we, we may change our stance on various things. But God never changes. God never changes. And the standard is this. If you follow Christ, you're following God's plan of who's going to be in heaven. It's going to be Christ's followers. But not only are we going to be surprised maybe who's there and who's not there, I think we're going to be shocked by those who didn't make it. Now, those that we may be surprised, we have to trust Hebrews uh, chapter 4, where it talks about the fact that God knows the intents of our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows the intentions of our hearts. So, so he judges. So that's why we may be surprised at some people that, that we, we didn't feel they may necessarily have had a relationship with God. But I think there's going to be a shock for those who didn't make it. Uh, turn in your Bibles with me to, to Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, we read in verse, uh, verse 21, these particular words where there was a group that was having a problem. He said, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one, one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's talking about having a right relationship. We talked about this with Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because he had a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the same here, that's what verse 21 is about. That's the problem. There, there are many who, who, who cried, Lord, Lord, but they're not going to be in heaven. And notice in verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out the demons and in your name perform many miracles? Notice in verse 22, it says there are many. We're not talking about a few people are going to cry. There's going to be many people. They, they, they would have gone through uh, the... They're going through rituals and, and thinking, hey, they were safe because they walked an aisle one time and they prayed this prayer and they got dunked by the preacher uh, in, a, in a baptistry or maybe in a creek or a lake someplace and they think everything is all well. But there's going to be many, it says. Let's go back earlier in chapter 7, verse 13. It, Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. There are many on the broad way and entering a broad gate, but only a few are on the narrow gate and the narrow path. And, and we're going to see in a moment why a lot of people uh, are on the broad way because they will not accept God's plan of salvation. Now, Paul says there's a path, and we call it the Romans road to salvation. Many of you have heard this. Many of you use it in sharing the gospel with Jesus Christ. But I think it would behoove us just to go back through it for just a few moments and talk about the path, the way, the, so that we might make it through that narrow gate and make it that narrow path that leads to God. Understand this, no one accidentally 
finds themselves on the road to heaven or on the road to hell. It's a matter of choice. And so this morning, let's talk just for a few moments about this Roman road. And it begins by reminding us there is a sin problem. In Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have a sin problem. And that sin problem is that we have broken God's law. But here is the, here's the issue with some people. There are some people, you start to witness to them, you start to talk to them about sin, and they, they say, oh, I'm not a sinner. I'm not, I'm, I'm not as bad as some people. And that may be true. They may not as be as bad as some people, but they're still a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A mother catches uh, her child and said, you've been in the cookie jar, haven't you? And he says, no, I haven't been in the cookie jar, and yet there are cookie crumbs all over his face and all over his hands, all right? Or you've seen that Cheeto commercial on TV and where the woman's holding the bag of Cheetos. No, not me. Well, there's a lot of people, they don't want to go any further in conversation about Jesus Christ because they will not admit that they are sinners, that they have broken God's law. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But it's based upon something that happened earlier in that chapter, in Romans chapter 3. We're in verse 10 and 11, it says, There is no one righteous, no, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away, and they together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And you may get depressed over that. Well, before Jesus Christ, that's, that's the condition of all of us. None of us would seek God in our own. None of us are righteous. None of us have done right in the eyes of God. It's what the theologians call uh, the total depravity of man. We're all totally depraved before coming to know Jesus Christ. We were all dead in our trespasses and our sins. And we have to understand that that hits all of us. There is this gulf between us and God. And it's because of the sin we have died. As we talked about death a few weeks ago, uh, physical death is the separation of the body and the spirit. Well, spiritual death is the separation of your life away from God. That's why Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. And you may be thinking, you may be like some of those folks to say, hey, well, I don't know about this sin, preacher. Well, let me, let me say it this way. How many of you have been sitting in a service at some time or another in your life? You've been sitting in a worship service. We've sung the hymns, the songs, and you hear the preacher preaching, and all of a sudden, a real sinful thought comes across your mind. A really bad thought comes across your mind. And if I was asked you to raise your hand, most of you would. The others of you would be lying if you didn't raise your hand. All right? Because we've all been there. I've been there. I've sat in a service before. And, and some terrible thought came across my mind. You know what that is? That's the virus of sin. That's the virus of sin. It's affected all of us. And because of that sin, the results is death. In Romans 6.23, we are, we, we, we are told the wages of sin is death. What we deserve, you work, you get a wage. That's what you deserve. What we deserve in wages because of our sin is death, is a separation from God. And we have this God who is a holy God. We sang it in, in our music this morning. We, we have a holy God, and because He is holy, because He is separate, He cannot allow sin. That's why Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Of many reasons, that was the chief reason. 
It was because now they had sin, they could not reside in heaven. Sin cannot reside in heaven. Sin cannot be around a holy God. But what Jesus did for us is that he came to be the substitute because we had no power to change that. So Romans 5, 8 says, But God committed his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God showed us his love. He commended, he manifested. He showed his love that even while we were sinners, undeserving of salvation, undeserving of forgiveness, he sent Jesus to be the substitute for us on the cross. So not only is he the substitute so we have forgiveness of sin, but the Bible says his righteousness has been credited to us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, the Bible says. So that's the substitute. But even on the cross, because of Jesus, his righteousness can be credited to you. He has plenty of righteousness for all who will receive him. So that positionally we stand before God as one is righteous because Jesus stands as our advocate and has given us what we were deficient in, righteousness. He has given it generously to us. But it's not enough to know that from our head. It's not enough to understand these scriptures. There's a choice that has to be made. There's a decision that has to be made. In Romans chapter 10, we read this in verse 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth or confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess faith and are saved. And so there is that choice now. That it, now it is the ball is in your court. You, you understand the scripture. The Holy Spirit begins to convict you that you are a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. Jesus is the answer. God gave Jesus to us, this world, so that we might receive him and know the forgiveness and have his righteousness. But now we have to declare with our mouth, confess with our mouth, agree with God you're a sinner, and receive Jesus into your heart as Savior and Lord. It's a gift. For the rest of that verse in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You believe, you trust, you get a gift. You receive the gift. Now, there have been times I've been offered gifts and I, I didn't feel worthy to receive those gifts. But I accepted the gifts. I felt unworthy. I didn't do anything to deserve this, whatever. But I accepted the gift. God wants to give every one of us the gift. It's the gift of Jesus. It's the gift of salvation. But we have to make that decision, that choice of receiving the gift of trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ, believing, surrendering our hearts and our lives to him. And when we do, there in that beautiful transformation takes place. All the biblical words, we're now justified. We're now redeemed. We are reconciled. And on and on, we could go and use a lot of different theological words, scripture words that talk about that transaction, that spiritual transaction, the miracle that takes place the moment we surrender our hearts to Christ. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. Everyone, bow your heads. Your eyes are closed. Maybe there's someone here, though the majority of us have already made the choice and decision we're Christ followers. Maybe there's somebody here right now. And it's not an accident you're here this morning. 
But God's Holy Spirit has been speaking to you. You feel the tug in your heart. You're understanding maybe the scripture, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, a parent, a pastor, a friend, a, 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 a track that you've heard before and now hearing it again. You're in church, you're, you're here, the people of God are praying for you and you're now ready to surrender your heart to Jesus Christ. Would you pray a prayer? You can repeat the words to yourself that I'm about to say. But God knows your heart. Again, Hebrews 4, he knows your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And whether you get all the words right or not, you're surrendering, you're believing, you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation. For it says in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Would you pray this prayer? Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against you. Please forgive me of my sin. Jesus, I believe you are Lord. I believe you came and died on a cross. You were buried. And you rose again the third day. I trust you for my salvation. Come into my life. Be Lord of my life. I surrender. Help me to be the Christian that you want me to be. And thank you for saving me. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer and the sincerity of and the heart that you have in understanding God's word, Jesus Christ has now become Lord of your life. You've become a Christian. It's the beginning. It's not the end. We're not talking about fire insurance to keep you out of hell. We're talking about now a walk with Jesus and a relationship just like you have with your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, your children, your friends, a relationship that now takes you right into eternity. I'll tell you more about what to do about that in just a few moments. See, there's two destinations. The righteous, those who are choosing to do right with God, those who have sought forgiveness, now receive that, have Christ in their heart, their destination is heaven. Those who reject, those who re refuse to accept God's gift to Jesus, their destination is hell, eternal punishment. So who's going to be in heaven? First of all, those that have a right relationship with Jesus Christ. But what about those who've never had an opportunity? And you, I hear this sometimes with people who, who have a hard time with the exclusive nature of the gospel. That there's only one way. That John 14, 6 says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. They have problems with that. They say, what about people in foreign countries? What about, what about those folks? Hey, don't worry about people in foreign countries. Let's worry about people in the United States who've never heard the gospel. We're kind of here in the Bible Belt. There are places around this country where people have never had an opportunity really to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So yes, here in our country and internationally. What about those who've not heard the truth? Are, are they going to hell? Well, let's talk about three groups of people. So first of all, so what about those who never heard about Jesus? What about those who've never heard about Jesus? Again, those critics who say, hey, what about those in these foreign countries? And I include our country. What, what about the Jews? 
who just had the law and that's all they followed was rituals? What about the moralists of our days who followed their own laws? What about the Gentiles the Bible talks about? which really is just another word for heathen in the Old Testament, or Old Testament, New Testament times, but today would be people who've, again, who've never heard the gospel message. Well, let me tell you that there is an answer if they've had an opportunity to receive Christ or not, if God's going to send them to hell. And again, I repeat, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So they're going to have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But would God condemn these people who have, no, have had no in, uh, opportunity to know Jesus and, in a true and living way? Well, the answer is this. God has provided a way. He did provide a way. In the book of Romans, in chapter 1, in verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God is in, is God's invisible qualities, His eternal powers and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So listen clear, carefully to me these next few moments. It's what theologians call natural revelation. God has given us natural revelation. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, I just read for you. God has revealed himself in this world with all of his creation, how he's made the world, how he's made you and me, how he's put things together. But it's not enough just to say, hey, I believe in a creator God. It's more than just that because Romans 3 says we're all sinners. And John 14 says that uh, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So how do we reconcile that together? This is how we do it. We reconcile it by saying that God has made himself known and those who recognize through natural revelation that there is a God and there's more to life than what they're understanding or experiencing, God will make truth known to them. He's going to bring people to them that are going to be able to share Jesus Christ with them. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it, we read Paul's words saying that God desires no one to perish, but that they might come to the knowledge of the truth. He says that in verse 4 and then verse 5 and 6. He talks about what that truth is. He talks about what Jesus did on the cross and how we have been ransomed. The, the payment was paid for our sins. Someone had to pay the sin debt. And so as Paul is speaking about that, I think you... Put that together with natural revelation. And so a good gauge if someone wants to know more about God is that they begin, first of all, recognizing me as a creator and that there's a deep longing in his heart or her heart. And I believe God will provide truth to that person. So you say, give me some illustrations, Pastor. All right, let's start with Acts chapter 10. You remember the Roman official Cornelius? He was a God-fearer. He was a God-fearer, but he didn't know Jesus. So what did God do? He brought Peter to him there in Joppa, along the, the, the coast, the Mediterranean Sea of Israel, brought Peter to him and to his house. And Peter was able to share Jesus with him. And what did Cornelius do? He believed in all of his household, and they were baptized. Let me give you another illustration. Go two chapters earlier. Go to Acts chapter 8. 
there was this Ethiopian eunuch. He was an official of, of, of Ethiopia. He had been in Jerusalem. But there he is on the roadside, and he's sitting there, and he's reading through the Scripture, the book of Isaiah. He's not understanding everything. Uh, everything. So what does God do? God brought Philip there, one of the original disciples, uh, uh, deacons and brought him there and interpreted the scripture for him. He became a Christ follower, and he was baptized. I mean, that's just two examples. And our missionaries will talk about this over and over and over again, of how God spoke to people in dreams in foreign countries, speaks to them in dreams, and, and they realize there, there is a God and, and that, they're, that they need to pursue this. And so they're seeking out, and they seek out these people our missionaries and missionaries will begin to share the story because there was a longing in their heart. And we've got to trust our God that those who truly in their hearts recognize that there is a God of creation through natural revelation, that they want to know more and God will bring people to them that will be able to share Jesus Christ with them. Let's talk about another group. So what about Old Testament believers who lived before Christ. What about those people? Is Adam and Eve going to be in heaven? Is Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, David, Solomon, Daniel, on and on and on? I mean, they live before the cross. They live before the cross of Jesus Christ. They live before this time. And the Bible makes it clear, you've got to know Jesus to get into heaven. So how do we reconcile that? Well, we look to a representative, and his name is Abraham. Abraham is the representative of all Old Testament believers. Now let's refresh our memory just a moment about Abraham. Abraham was the one that God called out of Ur to go to the promised land. And so he started off, and he stopped in Haran, but eventually he made it to the promised land. I mean, he picked up everything uh, that, that he had, his belongings and his animals, his servants, and they made the move, they made the transition. God spoke to him in a covenant in Genesis chapter 12. You're going to be the father of this great nation. And so when we look at this man who made the transition, who came to the promised land, here was a man who was willing even, as God's instruction, to sacrifice Isaac who was that promised child, the seed would continue on. He was even willing to sacrifice him, a sign of what God was going to do with his own son Jesus on the altar for you and me, with his death and the shedding of his blood for our sin. Abraham was willing to do, but God stayed his hand. In all of this, we see the obedience of Abraham. He was not a perfect man, but we see generally the obedience of Abraham. But in Genesis chapter 15, something happened. In Genesis 15, his nephew Lot, who he had brought with him, and Lot was getting in all kinds of trouble, well, he had been kidnapped by some kings. And Abraham goes after him and rescues him from those kings. But Abraham is afraid, he's afraid that, that they will retaliate and that he, he will be killed and, and the line will not be able to, to continue because Isaac hadn't been born yet. And so we have this scripture of reassurance. This is what God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, 2,000 years later, Paul would say the same thing. He would say, hey, it's not, it's not works that saved Abraham. It was his faith. And in Romans 4, 2, and 3, this is what Paul said. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, 
He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul quotes something that happened 2,000 years before, but a reminder that Abraham was credited with righteousness. That word credited is an accounting term. An accounting, there are many of you that, that are either accountants, work in the accountant's office, you understand about accounting. There's, there is the credit, and it was credited to him ahead of time. Right now, when we leave here uh, from worship and from Sunday school, many of us may go out to eat. You may do a little shopping. You may do a lot of different things today or within the next day. And you're going to take that wallet of yours. You're going to pull out a piece of plastic. And you're going to give it to the person that is uh, receiving your payment for whatever it is. You don't have the cash. We don't use a lot of cash today for these things. But we use that credit card or that check card, whatever it may be. And what that is, is a promissory note that when the bill comes, you will pay it. Now, you can take whatever it is that you can eat, what you charge today, or you can enjoy whatever it is that you're going to buy, wear whatever it is that you may buy. But that's a promissory note, what you've done with that credit card, that one day the bill is going to come due. That's what happened with the Old Testament believers. There was a promissory note. It was credited to them, the righteousness of God. Why? Because they believed it wasn't their works. This is where Israel had so much problems. They had so many problems here in this area. They they thought that they had it all made as long as they could sacrifice and did all the rituals. No, those animal sacrifices never forgave anybody's sin. It was a foreshadowing of what ultimately would happen in Jesus Christ. Their salvation was their faith in God. And Abraham represents every Old Testament believer that had faith and believed and trusted and that they would be promised that one day there would be some payment on a cross for their sin. And that was done by Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Why is it that he said on the cross, it is finished? Which is another accounting term. It is finished. What God required for payment for our sin was now completed with Jesus on the cross. And so all the sins of the past, the present, and the future were now been forgiven. And so what we have in in history is it makes no difference where you live in history. If you were before the cross, that sin was forgiven. In Jesus' time is forgiven. My time, your time is forgiven. In the future, until Jesus comes... Sin has been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And it was credited to those in the Old Testament. We are on this side of the cross. We receive the full payment when we trust in Jesus. So, when we think of people, we think of those who've never had opportunity. But they have natural revelation. And God will respond to that natural revelation if they respond to it. We have Old Testament believers, but there's a third group I want you to hear that also we'll find in heaven. We'll find children and the Christ-like who cannot believe. People have often asked, is my child going to be in heaven? Their child died at a young age. Maybe it was SIDS. Maybe it was an accident, an illness. But for whatever reason, their children died. My grandparents, on the Coleman side, my grandmother had been married before my natural grandfather, and she brought one child in marriage. Then they had eight children themselves. 
Three of them died before they were even teenagers. Six out of the nine died before my grandparents died. And it's just one of those things through that families have and they go through. But I can remember talking with my dad about this because he was second to the youngest. And he didn't know two of the siblings. He did know one. She was right at a teenage age when she died. But I can remember talking to my dad about it, how my grandparents handled it. A beautiful testimony of grace, God's mercy on their life, how they handled it through the years. But as I think about other parents who've had to go through that with small children, there, there are always the questions. Are, are they going to be in heaven? What, what about the mentally incapacitated? What about the childlike? Are they going to be in heaven? While there's no direct scripture that helps us to understand fully the answer to that question, there are at least two areas of evidence I want you to look at. The first one was King David. You remember King David over in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. He should have been out with his troops. It's when kings went to war. He chose not to go to war. And he's walking around his palace on top of the palace wall. He looks over. He sees Bathsheba, the next door neighbor, and she is bathing in, clean, in, in plain sight. And he sends someone to bring her to his bedroom. And out of that illicit relationship, a child is born. Bathsheba gave birth to a little boy. Seven days, that child lingered in severe illness. And all during this time, David is fasting and is praying. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. He's praying. And then after seven days, the child dies. And what does he do? He gets up, he takes a bath, he goes to the table, he eats, and he be, continues with his life. His servants asked about it. Listen to what he said in 2 Samuel 12, 23. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. If the, if the child could come back, then David, would have been, David wouldn't have continued fasting. He, he would have been celebrating. He's going to come back. If he wasn't going to see the child again, he would have continued grieving. But he says, the child can't come back to me, but I can go where that child is. And that's why he was willing to go on with the rest of his life, because he knew he was going to see the child. In faith, he believed that when he died, he would see that child again in heaven. Now, while that's not total evidence, let me give you one that I think will help us even make a stronger case, that children go to heaven. Those who are unable to embrace the message, the childlike, embrace the message of Jesus Christ. And this is from the own, our, our own, own Lord Jesus Christ. Remember in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, the, there's children around him, and the disciples wanted those children to be dismissed. They, they thought the children were interrupting Jesus. And Jesus, don't, don't hinder the children to come to me. He loved children. He protected children. And so he puts one of the children, I think, probably right up on his knee, and he begins to talk about the kingdom of God. He says, unless one comes in childlike faith, 
you cannot be converted. You cannot enter the kingdom of God until you come in childlike faith. When, when we prayed to receive Christ, whether it was this morning or whether you were a teenager or a child or an adult, whenever that time happened in your life or maybe happened this morning, we were coming in childlike faith. And so Jesus is reiterating that in this passage of Scripture. But he didn't bring a child and put it on his lap and said, unless this child makes this decision, he's going to go to hell. He didn't say anything like that. He just used the child as a, a, an illustration that we come like children. We're innocent. And I believe that's also for the childlike, for the mentally incapacitated as well. That God protects those. Let me tell you and remind you of this. In the scripture, you don't find anywhere where children are damned to hell. You don't find any place in the scripture where it's mentioned that children are going to be at the great white throne judgment for lost people. I think we have great evidence of a loving God through the Son, through our Son, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that loves and protects children who cannot embrace faith. They will find their way into heaven. Listen to this in Genesis 18, 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? We have a gracious and wonderful God who will always do right. And based on what happened in David's life, what our Lord said about children, and holding them in the highest esteem, I think God will do right by our children and the childlike. Now lastly, let's look at this. What will our relationships be like in heaven? Last week I told you we would eventually get to this, and today's that day we talk a little bit about, about marriage as we sum up our message for the day. Let me begin by saying this. In heaven, our relationships are going to be generally like we've had here. I mean, think about Jesus. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. Is that not true? And when he came back and he appeared to the disciples on that first resurrection Sunday, they recognized Jesus. He talked with them. There was relationships going on. I think it's just a, it generally what we're going to find in heaven as well. And remember Jesus met with the disciples at the Sea of Galilee there in John 20 and 21. And we find that he, uh, he had a meal prepared for them. They sat down, they, they ate, and they had relationships with one another. They had fellowship with one another. I think the same thing's going to go on in heaven as well. I, I have to admit, a few weeks ago, we were in family night supper, and Adney Taylor was telling us a story. And he said there was a husband and wife, and the wife died, and she went to heaven. And then time went by, and the husband, he died and went to heaven. And there he saw his wife coming and running toward him. And, and she's about to embrace him. And he puts up his, his hands and like, stop. He said, uh, the, the covenant was until death do us part. All right. <laughs> Some of you haven't gotten it, but you'll get it. I read an article one time in Women's Day magazine. I don't normally do that, but I heard about a survey. All right. And the survey was this. Who do, you want to, who do you want to see first in heaven? 31% said their mother. 16% said dad. 10% said their spouse. 
We don't know about the other 43%. They're not covered, all right? So the question is that sometimes people ask is, will we be married in heaven? Yes, but not the way you think. The Bible does tell us in Mark chapter 12, verse 25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. When we go to heaven, will we know our husbands and wives? Yes. We will have a relationship with our husbands and wives, our children, our friends, family, and the new people as well. Yes, we will. But it's not going to be in the same type of relationship that we had in this world. We're going to be married. We're going to be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he's the bridegroom. We're the church. We're the bride of Christ. Please understand that marriage in this world is just a foreshadowing of the wonderful intimacy and relationship we're going to have with our Savior and our God in heaven. Here on earth, we had marriage for a reason. God wanted us to have companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. And so our deepest needs of love and companionship, intimacy, God gave us marriage. He gave us family. But in heaven, our attention is going to turn toward Jesus, the bridegroom. And we are the bride. We're the, uh, the, the bride, uh, brides ourselves, the bride of church, bride of Christ. So listen to this uh, a, a quote. I hope this will help you maybe see the deeper understanding. Dan Schaefer, in his book, A Better Country, Preparing for Heaven, wrote, Human marriage was always meant to be but a foreshadowing of the things to come. Human marriage is an exclusive relationship between one man and one woman. We desire the exclusive love, this special feeling of being the single and only romantic love of the other. In heaven, in his presence forever, we will finally eat the banquet for which all marriages and loves were but the hors We will not miss having the one relationship through which we find our life and fulfillment, but we shall finally experience the real thing in our Lord Jesus Christ. When we come face to face with him, all those deepest needs that we had in this world are going to be met in him. Now, are we still going to remember and understand our relationships here? Of course. Will we still have that special feeling of emotions with, with our wife, with our husband, our children? Sure, that, that's not going to slip from our memory. But it will not be quite the same as what we've had here in this earth. Our fulfillment will be in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together in prayer. As your heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Give yourself time to think about this last point about marriage. We have, this, we have this opportunity in this world that marriage is just the foreshadowing. And God has given it to us for intimacy, for a closeness, a love that, that's, that's deeply needed in our life. But even that is never to replace the love we're supposed to have with Jesus Christ. And ultimately, one day, it will be fulfilled in Him. But rest assured, heaven as much more than we could ever imagine. So don't be disappointed. Don't be discouraged. Think, oh, I don't want that. No, no, no. It's going to be more than you can ever imagine. 
as we share face-to-face -face with our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in the message, I gave an opportunity for someone here who may not have yet prayed to receive Christ. And if, if that is you, maybe a man, a woman, a boy or a girl, a teenager, you have an opportunity to make that decision public, be obedient to God, follow him in believer's baptism, and become a part of this community of faith, this family of God. This is the earthly representation of what it's going to be like in heaven. So I want to give you an opportunity to make that decision public. Jesus on one occasion said, if you're ashamed to proclaim me before man, I'll be ashamed in the presence of God. So you have an opportunity publicly, not to embarrass you, but for you making this faith statement by coming forward and desiring to be obedient. You may not understand all of it. We're here to help you. We're here to explain. But to give you that opportunity today. Father, bless those who need to come, who need to share in this decision. Thank you for those of us, Father, who understand this. We've done this. It's been the greatest joy of our life. May we be praying for those in our midst who need to do that today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.